Hi everyone, welcome to another podcast of The Lawdown, which is our regular podcast in which we discuss the latest topical news stories making the headlines and we unpack the interesting employment, discrimination and partnership law issues behind them. So I am Pooja Deskips, I'm a Senior Associate at CM Murray and I'm joined today by Beth Hale, partner at the firm, and we're also rejoined by original podcaster Sarah Chilton um, on the podcast. So I'm delighted to have Beth and Sarah on the podcast today. Um, we're going to be discussing three relatively recent news stories today. First one being um, Mason Greenwood and everything that's been going on in relation to him recently, namely the ethical issues arising from the fact that he hasn't been dismissed um, since despite being charged with attempted rape, assault and controlling coercive behaviour and having breached bail conditions. And then we're going to focus on Liz Truss's rather quick departure in recent months. Um, And then finally, we're also going to touch on the Met Police report that was published by Baroness Casey, which found that hundreds of Met Police officers have been getting away with breaking the law and misconduct. So, we wanted to start with the Mason Greenwood story. So for those who haven't been following this, that the Manchester United footballer Mason Greenwood was charged with attempted rape, engaging in controlling coercive behaviour and assault occasioning actual bodily harm. And Greenwood was originally arrested in January this year on suspicion of rape and assault of a woman before being further arrested on suspicion of sexual assault and threats to kill. And he's he had been on bail since the 2nd of February um, and then he was arrested again in October on suspicion of breaching his bail conditions. So at the moment, his first uh, court appearance has, was due to have taken place on the 17th of October. And so that's the kind of background of, of the actual the charges. And in terms of his relationship with, with Man U, he's remained suspended by them since the allegations came to light. And the club have said that they won't be making comment on the matter whilst the police continue with the investigation um, and it's obviously had already far-reaching ramifications for him in that for example Nike ended its sponsorship deal with him and Electronic Arts also removed him from active squads on its FIFA 22 game and that's obviously got the kind of financial and reputational consequences with it um, already. In terms of the kind of legal issues and you know, in an employment context, whilst Greenwood has been suspended since the allegations came to light, obviously he's not been sacked. And it could be that there is, and there likely will be an internal process that's underway, but which can't conclude uh, pending the outcome of of the parallel criminal proceedings, which may well take some time. Um, So I think at this point, probably before a verdict has been reached at trial, Dismissal would also carry with it potential legal and financial repercussions for Man U, of which, of which they would undoubtedly be aware. Because obviously, if, if Greenwood's dismissal was found to be unlawful, then he would, in theory, stand to be compensated for the sums owing to him under the remaining term of his contract. But the situation would, of course, be different if he's found guilty, because in such circumstances, you know, that would be quite easy grounds for dismissal for gross misconduct with immediate effect. So it will be slightly more difficult if he's found not guilty, because although the club could still form an argument for termination, you know, it, it, it might just be slightly more difficult for them in, in those circumstances. They could, of course, if an, if a not guilty verdict is reached, and this is all very much speculation at this stage, 
they might think about entering into settlement discussions with Greenwood about potential early termination of his contract. Um, but that will attract publicity as well in terms of kind of engaging in that settlement discussion with him. What that will look like for Man U um, might attract criticism, depending on whether or not. I mean, the terms of the settlement would, would be confidential, but still. Um, I think there are obviously wider reputational issues, which I'm sure, man, you're thinking about at the moment. Um, and it made me think about other instances where these types of allegations have been made against players um, and the kind of action or sometimes lack of action that's been taken by a club immediately after. Obviously, I've talked about some of the constraints that they might be facing. Um, but, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, when he faced allegations of rape, um, and then prosecutors closed the matter a year later because the case couldn't be proven beyond reasonable doubt. And in their attempts to take Ronaldo from Man City, United, as far as I understand, didn't, didn't mention anything publicly about those allegations. Um, so they kind of obviously made that decision that they just didn't want to talk about it at all. Um, and then Ryan Giggs as well was allowed to mutually agree with the Football Association of Wales to temporarily step down as manager of the national team, obviously, as we know after he was arrested on suspicion of assaulting his now ex-girlfriend. And then he formally stepped down last year in June, saying that he intended to resume his managerial career at a later date. So in that sense, he was kind of able to control the narrative um, and kind of get ahead of it before, before the Football Association of Wales kind of said anything about it. So query uh, whether or not that was the right thing to do. But he was able to do that. And with a second trial still looming next year. So, um, I mean, I think we'll all have various different opinions on how these allegations are managed um, publicly because we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. But I think the public are often expecting something a bit more in terms of the kind of comment that's made by the club. But I think there's also, there has to be an understanding about the constraints that they're facing too. I think that's right. I, th I mean, I think it's it's a really difficult one for employers. I mean, if you take it outside of the football sphere and just take a sort of normal everyday employer, um, I think there is often a, a knee-jerk desire to dismiss, even when just someone's just been charged, even if there's no conviction, and, and to try and accelerate that process, especially where there's an offence as serious as rape, um, in, on the sort of on the table. I, th I think. It, it's you've rightly highlighted the issues that that employers face in those circumstances that it's not you know, the fact that someone's been charged you may have a contractual right to terminate in those circumstances but even then you have to think about things like unfair dismissal I mean I think an unfair dismissal claim is not going to be high up on Manchester United's list of worries in respect to Mason Greenwood because the given the yeah. cap is 90,000 which I suspect is or he earned, he's currently earning 75000 a week or something okay, like that. So, yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I mean, I think it's, it's a really difficult one because often the, the criminal process moves at a very different pace to the internal employment process. So you might carry out an investigation internally. You might reach a view, someone, you know, your internal investigator might reach a view, uh, probably on the balance of probabilities about whether someone's done something, whether that, and, and indeed, even if they, even if you're not determining whether that thing has happened, because it's probably quite hard to do that particularly in the rape case but you might reach a view on reputational damage to the organization um, and wish to dismiss in those circumstances but I think it, it, it does it creates a real difficulty for employers because of the different strands of investigation and the different pace at which the criminal process will will move compared to the internal employment process which can move much more quickly. Mm. Yeah we've talked about it before haven't we in previous podcasts the kind of issues uh concerning concurrent investigations and mm -hmm. needing 
certain like the parallel processes to play out before you can uh, take the internal process forward. And obviously that creates potential room for injustice in itself. So, but that's just. I mean, I think it's worth saying that you can you can dismiss before the criminal process is concluded. Uh, you don't you, an employer your hands aren't totally tied as an employer because of that issue I just highlighted around the the, the burden of pr- the um standard yeah. of proof is ordinarily so you, you're not you know so, so I think you can reach a view and it may be that your that the the criminal process is proving frankly too distracting and too damaging to your business and you're prepared to take that risk that that you know the dismissal may be unfair or the dismissal might you know that, that there might be a, a legal issue with the dismissal if if it is just too damaging to have that um to have that sort of hanging over you um but yeah i think it, it presents a real difficulty for employers yeah so we'll see we'll have to see what happens with uh, mason greenwood um after the, after the trial. there's also an unnamed premiership player who um who plays in you know plays in an unnamed team in the premiership who's been charged with rape and is on bail but fifa have said that he can play at the world cup we don't know who, what even what national team he plays for so it's it's all very unknown but um but it's interesting that fifa say uh, that they have no problem with him going to the world cup when he has been and he hasn't been suspended by his club either hmm. it's really interesting you'd imagine some sort of investigation had been undertaken for fifa to hmm. reach that view but yeah it's one of those articles that you read where you can't gauge anything from because you don't know who who any of the people are but um all have to wait and see yes indeed okay so i think that takes us on to our second story beth if you want to go ahead with that one yeah so um when we were planning this podcast um i said that i would talk about uh the sort of political headlines and, and the underlying employment law issues um, and frankly uh, i'm a little bit spoiled for choice because um i could have talked about liz truss I could have talked about Gavin Williamson. I could have talked about Matt Hancock. Maybe we'll um, mention them all. But um, the, the thing I was going to talk about was, was Liz Truss's extraordinarily short term in office. And just uh, as, as PM, she was not an employee. So it wasn't a kind of probation period type situation. But I, I, I was it led me to think about the sort of parallels you see in the employment in, in the workplace um, and just that when it becomes clear very quickly that someone is really not able to do the job, is really not suited to the workplace, is really not, you know, that, that it's turning out to be a disaster, how quickly should an employer act? How quickly should an individual act if they feel that they are, you know, that if, if that sort of right, if they feel like the writing is on the wall? Um, and I just thought that that was quite a sort of interesting parallel. I think if you're an employer and it's very clear very quickly uh, that, something is not working out you would hopefully have a a probationary period in your contract which would allow you a shorter than shorter than normal notice period in which to terminate someone that doesn't totally get you off the hook although someone in terms of um, legal risk because although that person would probably not have an unfair dismissal claim until they've got two years service you do have to be cautious of discrimination whistleblowing issues I think it's very difficult to say oh they just don't fit and therefore we we're going to dismiss them very early you need to think carefully about why that is what has gone wrong and specific giving specific reasons for that termination um but yeah I felt I felt like Liz Truss sort of was a classic she failed her probation type of uh, situation I, I was also quickly just going to touch on Gavin Williamson because I think it's really interesting I mean the whole thing's really interesting but the and just for context um we are talking on the 7th of November and there's been a whole load of allegations over the weekend about um, text messages that he sent to the former chief whip 
and um, whether and she's made an allegation of bullying and complaint of bullying. Uh, I think one of the most interesting parts of it is the knowledge that the Rishi Sunak Prime Minister had when he appointed Gavin Williamson into the cabinet and whether he knew what he knew and when he knew it. Um, because if that complaint had already been made, and it comes back a little bit, it's, it's, it's a little bit like the um, the footballer story. It should, it's obviously a very different type of uh, offence, so different type of allegation. But, um, you know, what should you be hiring people, promoting people when you know that there are allegations made against them, when those allegations are as yet unproved? Um, and actually, it was it was a promotion of someone against whom allegations have been made that led to Boris Johnson's downfall. So it's quite a it's quite an interesting um, situation to think about. And I think often you will have in an in an employment contract or in a policy somewhere you'll have uh, you won't get a pay a, a pay rise or you won't receive a bonus if you are under investigation or that eligibility will be paused until the until pending the outcome of that investigation. Um, but obviously, the as I say the um, they're not it's not an employment situation for MPs and, and parliamentary and um, cabinet jobs so it's very different but it's just that I think it's really interesting to think about what you know when you know it as an employer and, and what you do about that whether you promote pending the outcome of that of that investigation. Yeah and it, and it often leads to employers having difficulty if they then want to pick up on that behaviour later on down the line because the employee's just going to turn and say, well, you promoted me. So, you know, Gavin Williamson, I mean, he doesn't have the same rights, obviously, but he's going to say, well, you couldn't have thought it was that bad because you promoted me. Yeah, now, it's all very well sure. saying, well, now that it's come out into the public domain, you're going to you're going to take yeah. action. Well, you know, that's not reasonable, is it? Because you, yeah. if you knew about it before. And if, if it's bad enough, it's bad enough, whether or not the public knew about it or not. But I mean, I'm fully expecting a number of U-turns before we get to the end of that story. Absolutely. Who knows he'll still be in post by the end of today. Or he'll be uh, eating bugs in the jungle as well. That's the, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting one. I was having a debate with someone about that and they were saying it's the same, you know, it's, well, Boris, Boris was on holiday and he's not serving his constituents. And I was saying, well, you know, whilst I'm not usually quick to jump to the defence of um, MPs um, going on holiday when they should be working, at least he's contactable on email. He can respond to urgent business. Presumably, and I don't know the terms of the, I'm a celebrity, but presumably to go into the jungle, you have to be compute, completely incommunicado. He has yeah. he has said that he, how this will work logistically, I don't know, but he has said, Matt Hancock has said that he will um, be able to respond to oh, urgent he? constituency uh, issues. I can't imagine how he can do that because you're right. He has to be totally off grid, doesn't he? But um, And also what's urgent? I mean, to, to a constituent, urgent, is maybe different to what he might think or who who's putting through messages to him might consider to be urgent. I mean, how that's going to work in reality, I don't know, being an avid viewer of the show. And well, the other thing I think he presumably still gets paid his MP salary, which seems yeah. completely wrong when he cannot possibly be fulfilling his duties. Yeah, because um, he's, lost the, he's lost the whip, but he yeah. has, he's but not still, he's still a member of parliament. as an MP, because there's no... There's no um, process for doing that other than no. a by-election them resigning and having a by-election so there's no process for removal because someone else extremists. made the analogy to me well other MPs do second jobs I'm like yes I know and you know that may may or may not be wrong or right but the difference again is that they might be able to continue to actually do their MP job whilst having a second job that's up for debate depending on what the second job looks like but if you are physically not able to do what you need to do because you can't have a phone, you can't communicate with people, then that is a completely different situation. But, you know, 
the other point I was just going to quickly mention as well about going back to Liz Truss, Beth, was that she's obviously still eligible to receive this allowance of yes. £115,000 a year that's available to form PM. So pretty pretty big contrast to how you would normally deal with kind of early termination of employment of an employee in ordinary circumstances. Absolutely. And I think never dream of receiving that kind of allowance for X many years. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it, it it feels very uncomfortable that, doesn't it? And I think um, you know, rightly the public was quite was quite um there was quite a lot of public outcry when that was revealed. Uh, who knows whether she will accept it. I suspect she will, because really why wouldn't you? But um uh yeah, I think it's you know that but that's a procedural issue with our constitution, our unwritten constitution, probably that we need to think about whether there is a kind of minimum term in office for PMs to to get that kind of payment. Presumably from a time where most of the time our PMs lasted longer (laughs) and it's probably not that foreseeable that someone would last such a short term in office. No. Um, So they maybe did earn that in some way shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously there are you know that having been PM there are various you know there, there is an impact on your life even if you're only a PM for a short amount of time but still. Yeah, agreed. Um, so that takes us on to our third story, I think, which is with you, Sarah. Yeah, so this is a story about the Met Police, um, which was reported a few weeks ago. And it arises from a report by Baroness Casey into the misconduct issues in the Met Police, some of which have been widely covered in the press, um, ranging from sort of abusive messages being exchanged between officers, officers taking photos, um, you know when they shouldn't be and um obviously the, the awful story of an officer abducting and murdering Sarah Everard and since then there's been a lot of issues raised with the Met Police but I thought it was interesting because it highlights um a delay in the processing and determination and outcome of disciplinary offences in the police force and I mean there's a number of other issues that it highlights um including uh concerns about systemic bias in the disciplinary process um, and that's a different issue that we won't really get into. But what I thought was interesting from an employment law perspective is the fact that in some, in fact, the average time it took for them to resolve a misconduct allegation was a year. And we're always quite conscious with, with dealing with employers and employees that speed is quite critical when you're dealing with these things. Now, you shouldn't um, you know, go quick at the expense of a fair and thorough process. But there are so many reasons as to why a year is on the whole not acceptable for a disciplinary um, process to conclude. And that is both for the um, person who's made the complaint and also for the alleged perpetrator, because both of those people have that hanging over them for that whole time. The um, the stress that that causes, sometimes that causes quite serious mental health issues for one or other person. There are sometimes witnesses who are impacted by that process. And, and the more wider issue is that if you, as an employee, don't see that people are dealing with misconduct properly when you make a complaint or when your friend or colleague made a complaint, you, re- you end up with no faith in a system um, to deal with those issues. And that culturally develops a system whereby people feel that they can maybe get away with misconduct um, and they don't see that people are being disciplined appropriately and therefore the standards basically slip and that's sort of a bit of what comes through in that report some of those officers were suspended whilst they were waiting for those outcomes which causes problems again in an under-resourced service if you're suspending people and then taking a year to resolve their complaints you may not be able to recruit into 
that position because you don't have a vacancy, um, but you are not putting that officer out um, in whatever work that they would normally be doing. So maybe impacting on resources, stretching the resources of the teams that are there, um, which is an issue highlighted in the report, but also stretching the resources available to the public and ultimately that police are there to protect the public and to police the public. So um, huge problems kind of flowing from that. Um, but I think from an employment law perspective, I would say one of the main issues in having that sort of delay and inability to deal with things and the comments made by the current commissioner were things along the lines of like there were hundreds of officers who were still in post who really should have been sacked just leads to a culture where people don't think their complaints are going to be dealt with and people think they can get away with stuff that they shouldn't be getting away with and that generally leads to a culture where disciplinary um, offences become endemic you know and bad treatment of people becomes commonplace um lack of respect for colleagues etc so i think the final point i was going to make was just that these were all internal disciplinary allegations so we're not talking about the, actually the very serious things that have been flagged in the news we're not talking about complaints by the public these are all complaints by colleagues about colleagues on things that are raised internally so um very similar to the sort of stuff that you see in employment situations day in day out and um, so hopefully now that this report has been issued and that pledges have been made to act on it we'll see some improvement in that process yeah I mean I, I when I was reading the story I was it was quite shocking really actually the findings made by Baroness Casey and one of the things that I talked about was where she comments on um the fact that allegations were quite frequently just dismissed and it made me think about the, the training or lack of training that's in place for the people actually handling those investigations and disciplinary processes and whether they are whether they feel that they are actually equipped to run those processes fairly and in a way that's kind of that upholds you know a certain type of culture and if I feel like those processes need to be kind of stripped back and just rewritten almost but query who has the time in the Met Police to do that yeah. but you know and and the cost as well I guess of, of training and, and doing that and if you were to think about, you know, potentially bringing in someone external to investigate and or to conduct a disciplinary, again, that's got additional costs, which presumably the Met Police are constrained in certain ways. But that might be something that they need to think about, you know, the actual way those processes run and what can be done to assist the people who are heading up those processes, because they probably feel huge burden themselves having to work day in, day out with the people that are accused or and the people who make the complaints and yeah, so just making sure they have adequate support too. Yeah, I thought it's interesting. One point I noted is that there had been a change where for certain processes, they'd been appointing a legally qualified chair to chair up that disciplinary process. Um, but from what I read, it was unclear whether they thought that that was actually causing delay or not causing delay mm. in the process. So they have obviously, whether or not that person is adequately trained is a different matter, because just because you are legally qualified does not, and I say this from personal experience, mean that I could sit and chair a disciplinary process in the Met Police. I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, I will ask because as an employment lawyer, I might have a bit of an edge as far as to start. Right, an edge over some people. So I certainly that. wouldn't be able to do it without training um, and without knowing the, sort of the organisation um, inside out. Um, but yes, I wonder if that's part of what they were trying to do there. But yeah, a lot of work to be done. Yeah. So great. Thank you very much um, for your insights, Beth and Sarah. That takes us to the end of today's Law Down, which we hope you've enjoyed. Uh, please get in touch if you want to discuss any of the topics or kind of rising issues uh, and by emailing us at info at cm-murray.com. Thanks very much. And we hope you join us next time.
Thanks Thank a lot. You.